All right, we are continuing uh, our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Today's passage is all about communication, how we talk to each other. And I'm going to be honest with you several times today and tell you this is uh, an especially convicting lesson for me because if you really know me well, um, you know that I'm not the most careful person when it comes to my words sometimes, uh, which is a really polite way of saying that. But um, let's consider this morning the words of Jesus together, beginning in verse 33. It will be up on the screen. It says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, if you're following what he's saying, um, it's, it's pretty clear, and I'm sure that you would agree most of us are guilty of this at times, right? Um, just... Last week, I told some of my friends a story about something that happened to me, and a few of them um, rightly questioned the truthfulness of my story. And so, in an effort to convince them, I literally said these words, May God strike me down if I'm lying about it. And one of my friends responded, Please let me back away before you say something like that. Now, that's an embarrassing story because I shouldn't need to say something. I should know better as a pastor, right? But I shouldn't need to say something so foolish to convince people that I'm telling the truth. And that is the point that I think Jesus is making, especially in verse 37. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. It was unnecessary, even evil, he calls it. But there is a context to this that I need to share. The religious leaders at that time were known for creating loopholes when it comes to oaths. In fact, I'm going to call them oath games, almost like a game that children would play with each other. As a child, if I made a promise, but I had my fingers crossed, what does that mean? Doesn't count, right? It means that I don't have to keep my promise. And that's the kind of things that kids do. And that's the kind of nonsense that people were doing in Jesus' day with these oath games. People who should know better. They decided that their oath was only binding if they used the correct formula. The right words. And so it was a a sneaky way of getting out of a promise and essentially cheating other people. Jesus attacked the Pharisees for exactly this kind of game in Matthew 23. Listen to what he says. He says, 
Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred, Jesus says. He says, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, what these men were doing was they were inventing rules to help people get away with lying. Or bearing false witness, which is, of course, a violation of the ninth commandment. And what is Jesus teaching here? He's saying your formula is irrelevant, right? His point is that words have power in and of themselves. You don't need a magic formula, right? This is not an incantation. It's just words, but words are powerful. So he says if you're going to play games with oaths, then just stop using them altogether. And that is his message. But... We really need to talk about this further because this teaching would have been very confusing to you if you were a first century Jewish person. And it should actually be a little bit confusing to us as 21st century Christians if we know our Bibles. And the reason it should be a little confusing to us is because God himself swears oaths all over the Bible. So why is it okay for God, not us? Listen to some examples. Genesis 22, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withhold your son, your only son. Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Psalm 132, 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now you might say, well, that's God and God's different. But it's not just God. It's also the Apostle Paul. Romans 1, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 2 Corinthians 1, 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness. This is oath language. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And there are other examples throughout Scripture of people taking oaths. It seems that Jesus could not possibly be making an absolute prohibition against oath swearing. 
And in fact, I'm going to argue that the Bible actually allows oath swearing even by God's name. And I'm going to show you specifically in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So what's going on here? Is Jesus contradicting this by telling his disciples not to swear oaths? I think there are several considerations. The first is this. I think that there is a clear difference in Scripture and in practice between public speech and private speech. There is a place, I think, for public oath-taking. And I mean things like marriage vows. Okay? Joining a church, which we did this morning, right? That there are vows being taken. So if that's wrong, then I'm, and I'm violating what Jesus said in Matthew 5, then we've, we've all done it, right? So I think there's actually a place for that. Um, I think signing a contract, entering into business agreements, things like that, those are, those are okay. I don't think that Scripture forbids these types of oaths. Second, remember that Jesus is calling out a very specific practice, a very specific twisting of the law. And it's these oath games of the religious leaders, which he addresses several times in the Gospels. And then third, the context of the Sermon on the Mount shows us a pattern. Jesus is using this commandment to reveal something about the human heart. And I would say that the very existence of oaths and promises should tell us that we live in an untrustworthy world. And that that's what Jesus is trying to reveal, not just to the religious leaders, but to us. You see, why does even God choose to speak to us through oaths and covenants? It's certainly not because God lacks credibility, right? I think it's because we lack faith. And there is a sense in which God, very often in Scripture, does things to condescend to us. Acknowledging that we struggle, right? We question the words even of our Creator. And so God, in His mercy, does this type of thing. He makes these types of oaths so that we will be comforted. You see, this was the first sin, right? You go all the way back to Adam and Eve. What was the first sin? It was believing a lie instead of believing their Creator. And God knows that we are so prone to hearing lies. We are so distrusting of the words that we hear. That he chooses to take oaths for our sake. He uses them to comfort us in our doubts. To assure us in our faith. In other words, God used oaths to help convince people who don't already know him that he can be trusted. But that's not how most of us use our words. And that's what Jesus wants to expose in us. And so I want us to use this as an opportunity this morning to think about our words together. <clears throat> and again, this is really convicting to me. So, do people trust 
what I say? Or am I the kind of person that must exaggerate in order to convince people that I'm telling the truth? If I carry the reputation of being a trustworthy person, would all my extra words be necessary? Now, it may be difficult for us to see this problem, especially if you focus on professional relationships. And to be honest, most of you are probably scratching your heads like, I don't think Mike is untrustworthy or, you know. But you see me in a certain setting. And not that I'm trying to be two different people, but I think what the illustration I'm going to use, you'll see that this is true of most of us professionally, right? In the workplace, you may have earned a reputation of being a trustworthy person. But what about at home? I think this is easier to see in our more informal relationships. And here's the illustration I want to use. Moms and dads. One of the most important things we want from our kids is that they learn to tell the truth. Right? I mean, it's important to us. We want our kids to be truth tellers. We don't appreciate when they lie to us. Right? We want to be able to trust them. We want them to trust us. And yet, if we're honest, how often are we guilty of breaking little everyday promises to our kids? How often do we fail to follow through because in our heads we think we're adults and they're kids and they just need to adjust? And so a lot of our trustworthiness is bound to a certain level of respect that we give to other people. And when we don't give them that respect, we don't feel like we have to be truthful. We don't feel like we have to honor our promises. Right? And so we do this with our kids. We break those promises. We play these oath games with our kids. Well, we'll see. Well, maybe. Yeah, I'll get around to it. And we never do, right? And then we act surprised when they lie to us. Same thing. Dan Doriani, um, one of the commentaries that I'm using, has a great section in his commentary on this passage. And he's asking the question, why is telling the truth so difficult? And if we're honest, it is rather difficult I mean, it seems like it should be easy to tell the truth, right? You you read through the Ten Commandments and like the Ninth Commandment just seems basic, minor, right? But if we're honest, we know that it's actually extremely challenging and it's, it's one that gets all of us. And he suggests that the reason we face temptation daily to bend the truth is either out of carelessness or out of cowardice. We're either being careless with our words, or we're afraid to tell the truth. So what does carelessness look like? And this is, honestly, this is me most of the time. I don't always think before I speak. And I I often joke that there's this slip and slide from my brain to my mouth, right? Things just fall out. And... It's not funny. It can be hurtful, right? It can be unwise. It can be unhelpful. It can be unkind. And it's very hard to stay truthful when 
you don't think before speaking. So carelessness is part of the problem. But other times he says that we tell lies because we're afraid to tell the truth. Because honesty exposes us. It makes us feel weak. It makes us feel vulnerable. And people may see that and then they may use that honesty against us, right? It may cause conflict. How many times have you mustered up the courage to say something to a friend or a family member that needed to be said? You, you did your best to say it in love, and it created a major fight. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is speak the truth, but we're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of how people are going to respond. But Jesus is calling us to be careful and courageous with our words. And notice that His standard is literally perfection. And that's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's trying to level the playing field. He's not holding us to the standard of the religious leaders where you can just like twist your words and it's okay. He's literally setting a standard of perfection. He wants us to understand that our failures are significant. They are evil. In fact, Jesus would have us all believe, every single one of us in this room, myself included, He would have us all believe that we are liars and cheats. But He would have us believe that in order to save us. I saw an article this week saying that one-third of all U.S. pastors believe that good people can earn their way to heaven. Let me say that again. One-third of all pastors in the U.S. believe that good people can earn their way to heaven. And that is a lie. You know why it's a lie? Because there are no such thing as good people. And the other two-thirds hopefully understand that, which is why they answered that question, no. Because brothers and sisters, we cannot earn our way to heaven. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He said, yes, good people living the perfect life God requires can save themselves. The problem is, there are no good people. And that may seem like a minor thing, but it's not. This is essential. You cannot misunderstand this and also understand grace. You cannot believe that good people get to heaven and understand the gospel at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive beliefs. We cannot earn our way to heaven. The truth is that we are promise breakers and liars. We speak when we should hold our tongue, and we hold our tongue when we should be speaking. Can you be honest about that? Can I be honest about it? Can we be honest that we're not trustworthy people? That's kind of the point of the Sermon on the Mount, exposing us, showing us we're, we're actually not commandment keepers. 
We're not doing as well as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. We're worse than we think we are. But thankfully, and this is, this is what ties it all together. This is the beauty, right? Thankfully, God spoke a word when He could have held His tongue. God didn't have to say anything to, to fix our situation. He didn't have to do anything. But God spoke a word when He could have held His tongue. God made and then kept a very important promise. You see, God made a promise to Abraham several, several thousand years ago. And the scriptures say, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? So Abraham wasn't in God's favor because he was a good person, but because he believed and God made him a good person. You cannot get that backwards. It ruins everything if you do. So Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness, but not at first. And this is the important thing. At first, Abraham didn't believe. God told him the promise and Abraham didn't believe. You know what Abraham said to him? He said, okay, I hear you, but how can I trust you? How can I know that you're telling me the truth? You see, there's that, that distrust that all of us have, even of God, even of our Creator. God literally comes to him out of nowhere and says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you land. And Abraham's like, man, but how can I trust you? And the truth is, everyone I've ever known, including myself, that's really how we come to God. Well, I hear you, preacher. It sounds a little too good to be true. How do I know? And some of you may be asking that right now. How do I know that God is actually there? How do I know that anybody is listening when I speak words to the air? How am I supposed to know? So Abraham asked God, how do I know I can trust you? And God said, go get some animals. And this is messy, okay? So Abraham goes and gets some animals and then he cuts them in half. And he spreads the animals on the ground. And he makes a path of blood. This is what they did. Abraham understood this as a covenant. This is what people did back then when they make promises. So God's saying, okay, you need some, you need some uh, assurance. Alright, go cut some animals up. Let's make a covenant. And so Abraham spreads the animals out on the ground. He's expecting to make this promise with God. Because that's how it was done, right? They would, they would spread the animals and then the two people who are making the covenant would walk beside each other between the dead animals together. And it was as if they were saying, we will keep this agreement or if we don't, if I don't, you can do to me what we did to these animals. That's what they're saying. Kind of creepy. But that's what a covenant was. Here's the cool part. God did not let Abraham walk the path. Did you know that? 
Abraham is expecting, okay, God and I are making a deal. And I'll be able to trust him because we're going to make this covenant. And I know he'll keep his promise. But God did not let Abraham walk the path. Abraham was put to sleep. God put him into a deep sleep. And then you know what happens next? God walks both ways alone. What is he saying? He's saying, Abraham, I will keep my word. And when you fail, which you will, I will die in your place. You see it? God wasn't expecting Abraham to keep his word. God was expecting that Jesus would have to come die in his place. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to keep God's covenant promise to people who don't deserve it. Jesus came to walk the path. The Via Dolorosa. He took the curse for liars and cheats and sinners like me and like you. And all He asks us to do, all He wants us to do, is repent and believe. Yes, Lord, I am a lawbreaker. Yes, Lord, I am a liar. And You are my saving grace. And that is the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come to You asking forgiveness. We come to You also preparing to receive um, the Lord's table. This table is set before us. A simple meal that You gave Your disciples to remind us that You walked that path alone. That Your body was broken and Your blood was shed in our place. I pray, Lord, that You would make it a means of grace for us this morning. Use it to encourage us, to humble us, but also to give us confidence that Your promise is sure. That Your Word is true. That Your work is finished. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.